Thresholds Radio with your host, John Stevenson. Recording the UFO active. And there in the darkness, on the ground, knocking on the walls, something crawling. The ghost of the ghost of the ghost of the ghost of the You're listening to Thresholds Radio. Today we're talking with Kevin Camps, a nuclear waste specialist from Beyond Nuclear. Stay tuned, we'll be right back. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-Info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com. You're listening to Thresholds Radio on UFO-Info.com. Welcome back. With us now is Kevin Camps from Beyond Nuclear. Welcome to the show, Kevin. How are you doing this evening? Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm doing great. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Why don't you tell everybody uh, who you are and what your organization is and uh, everything about it for people that have no idea. Sure. Well, I serve as radioactive waste watchdog at Beyond Nuclear, and our organization is a nonprofit environmental group. We're based in Tacoma Park, Maryland, which is a nuclear-free zone. We came into existence in 2007, but all of our uh, four staff members have a lot of experience. My coworker, Paul Gunter, for example, is a founder of the Clamshell Alliance in New Hampshire, which was really the, the beginning of the anti-nuclear power movement in this country. So he's been at, at this since 1975, and I've been at this work since 1992. A uh, big part of my focus is on radioactive waste issues, as my title, Radioactive Watchdog, kind of reflects. And we are a watchdog group at the national and international level on the nuclear industry, uh, both sides of the uranium coin, both the nuclear weapons and the nuclear power. Our, our main focus is on nuclear power, which keeps us very busy, but there's so many overlaps between the two. So I'm on a speaking tour right now that's brought me to the Midwest, including to Chicago. Uh, I'll be in Chicago this weekend and next week, uh, starting with the Green Festival. We'll have an information table there. Uh, we're having a, a social gathering, a uh, reception and fundraiser on Monday. And we're going to be really focused in Chicago on the issues uh, of significance to the Windy City. So one example is the fact that there are four Fukushima Daiichi design reactors in Illinois, upwind of Chicago, uh, Dresden 2 and 3 in Morris, and then uh, the two units at Quad Cities. They're exact replicas of Fukushima Daiichi, only they have tremendously more high-level radioactive waste in their storage pools than the four units that were involved in the catastrophe that's ongoing in Fukushima Daiichi, Japan. And there's so many more issues that we'll be discussing. Uh, really, almost every aspect of the uranium fuel chain has implications for the state of Illinois. You'll be talking um, about that on Monday, you said, Kevin? 
Yeah, we'll be discussing that all weekend at our table. We'll also uh, go over that on Monday. We have uh, myself from Beyond Nuclear, and we have David Kraft from Nuclear Energy Information Service based in Chicago, which itself is over 30 years old and is Illinois' nuclear watchdog. Illinois has more operating reactors than any other state in the country, 11 right now. It used to have 14, but three of them have permanently shut down. One of the issues we'll be addressing uh, at all these activities will be the largest decommissioning in U.S. history at Zion, 30 miles north of Chicago, two of those three reactors that have shut down. It's uh, a nuclear power plant with two full-scale reactors. Each are 1,000 megawatts electric, and a company from Utah called Energy Solutions is in charge of this project to dismantle those reactors to supposedly clean up the site and manage the high-level radioactive waste that's there. The bill for all of this is a billion dollars or more, and so we're concerned that either Energy Solutions will do a very bad job, leaving a lot of radioactive contamination in place and a lot of radiological risk, and then just pocket the leftover money. Or the other concern is that if they do a good job, it's going to cost a lot more than a billion dollars. And, you know, Illinois ratepayers, perhaps even Illinois state taxpayers, perhaps even American federal taxpayers will be looked to for that money. So nuclear uh, power plants are of concern even after they're shut down. Yeah, I didn't think they could ever clean those up, actually. I don't know a whole lot about this, but I was down, always thought that uh, once something was radioactive like that, it was pretty well that way for a long, long, long time. Well, you're right. This whole notion of cleaning up uh, a nuclear power plant or even of disposing of radioactive waste are misleading because uh, you're right. Radioactivity, once created, cannot be done away with. It simply has to be managed forever into the future. So another... Illinois story would be, you know, the Manhattan Project, 1942, the University of Chicago played a big role. Enrico Fermi, Mm -hmm. Italian nuclear physicist, was based there, and the first splitting of the atom took place at the University of Chicago under the football field, under Stagg Field, in a squash court. And where did Fermi's waste go? Uh, He split the atom on December 2nd, 1942. And here we are approaching 70 years later, and his waste is still buried under a mound of earth in the Palos Forest Preserve, southwest of, uh, you know, central Chicago. That's actually my area, too. That's kind of creepy. That's where I grew up. Well, it's, uh, it is creepy because we don't know what to do with this stuff. We don't know what to do with the first cupful of high-level radioactive waste that Fermi generated almost 70 years ago. So uh, we're also going to be holding, in conjunction with Nuclear Energy Information Service, an event this December to commemorate um, Fermi's splitting of the atom, and we're calling it a mountain of radioactive waste 70 years high. So, you know, you're from that very area, so you're you're dealing with the first waste of the atomic age. We now have... uh, 67,000 metric tons of commercial high-level radioactive waste in the United States at this point. We have more than 10,000 tons of Department of Energy high-level radioactive waste. That's uh, nuclear weapons complex waste. That's research reactor waste. And we don't have a solution for it. Uh, Yucca Mountain, Nevada, 
was the illusion of a solution for more than 25 years, that was going to be the dump site for the commercial waste, the Department of Energy waste, but incredibly, Yucca Mountain's legal limit was reached in spring of 2010, and also Yucca's never going to open. Uh, to his credit, the Obama administration made a very wise decision to cancel that proposal. If waste had been buried at Yucca Mountain, Nevada, it would have turned the downstream area and the downwind area into a very large nuclear sacrifice area because it was going to massively leak into the environment. Yeah, can it get into the water table and just go everywhere from that? That was the main issue at Yucca Mountain was uh, even though it's an arid area uh, currently, uh, that will change with climate change. There will be more and more precipitation there. But underground at Yucca, there is a lot of water. In fact, if the burial tunnels under Yucca were to be sealed without ventilation, they would have 100% humidity in those tunnels, incredibly. And the geology, uh, the chemistry of the rock out there is very corrosive. There mm-hmm. are, um, chemical elements like fluorine and chlorine that would combine with that humidity and with the heat that would be generated by the high-level radioactive waste, and it would be the perfect environment for corroding away the waste burial containers, releasing the contents into that flowing water, which then would surface eventually downstream in Death Valley National Park, which is the home of a band of western Shoshone Indians called the Timbisha. That's where their community is located. That's where the water would surface, but before it got there, there are drinking water wells. Uh, one of the biggest agricultural communities in Nevada is downstream of Yucca Mountain. It's called Amargosa Valley, and they tap Yucca Mountain's groundwater to irrigate their crops, to water their livestock. There's a big dairy industry there. So we were really playing with fire with this proposal. Didn't I read somewhere that the containers that they put the nuclear waste in aren't rated you know, to last as long as the actual nuclear waste itself does. So for future generations, we're condemning them? Yes, absolutely so. Um, Yucca Mountain was an example of that with the waste burial containers. Even the Department of Energy admitted that they would, the first one would fail 11,000 years after its burial at Yucca. The state of Nevada, which is adamantly opposed to the dump site, put that figure more at a centuries figure, just a few centuries into the future, the waste burial containers would begin to fail. And I think Nevada's probably right, because we have evidence right now at nuclear power plants. Uh, for example, Palisades uh, nuclear plant in southwestern Michigan on the Lake Michigan shoreline, you know, just across Lake Michigan from Chicago, has a defective container. It's called a dry cask. This is because the pools at the nu- nuclear power plants in the U.S. have filled to capacity. There are indoor pools where the high-level radioactive waste goes. But once they're crammed as full as they can be, the overflow uh, high-level radioactive waste goes into outdoor containers called dry casks. They're silos of concrete and steel. One of those containers at Palisades, dated 1994, was quickly announced to be defective about two weeks after it was loaded in June of 1994, defective welds on that container. And the company had promised, and so had the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, that if they had any problems with the dry casks, they would unload them back into the pool. This was uh, promised under oath in federal court when we tried to stop the loading of the dry casks in the first place. So they again announced 
to you know honor their previous word, they would unload that defective cask. But then they ran into the very technical challenges that we had warned them about. And long story short, that container with defective welds is still fully loaded with high-level radioactive waste going on 20 years later, just 100 yards from the water of Lake Michigan. What would happen, say we don't get, uh, I mean, all we get out here are tornadoes, but I mean, if a tornado hit something like that, that's, I mean, that would be like Fukushima, right? It would be amazingly bad. Yeah, they're, well, the dry casks themselves are vulnerable to tornadoes. Uh, they're actually supposed to live up to what the Nuclear Regulatory Commission calls a tornado missile test, which means tornadoes pick up things like telephone poles and slam them into other things. And can the dry casks survive such an assault from nature? Well, tornadoes are getting stronger and stronger, as we saw in Joplin, Missouri. Last exactly. Year, a a mile-wide tornado that devastated the entire town. So whether or not the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's tornado missile test is actually adequate to, you know, a climate crisis and global weirding is another question. But the nuclear power plants themselves are vulnerable to tornadoes. So just one example of many that could be given. June of 1998, a powerful tornado traveled right between the containment shell, the containment building over the reactor, and the and the cooling tower at the Davis-Bessie atomic reactor near Toledo on the Lake Erie shoreline. It did not hit either one, but it pretty much was a direct hit on the overall nuclear power plant, and it destroyed the electrical equipment, the off-site grid. That's the primary source of electricity to a nuclear power plant to run its safety and cooling systems. So the grid was lost. It was destroyed by the tornado and the nuclear plant had to turn to its emergency diesel generators on site. They only had two, and the first one would not start at all. It was dysfunctional, so they gave up on it quickly. And they turned to the second and last remaining source of power to run the safety and cooling systems at the plant, which was the second diesel generator, and it kept breaking down. Over the course of two days, it broke down multiple times. They had to fix it each time because they had no other choice. And by a miracle, they kept it running for the better part of two days, despite all the breakdowns. And just as it finally gave up the ghost for good, the electrical grid had been restored. They were racing to restore the electrical grid to get electricity to the safety systems. And what they were playing with there was a very dangerous game of the reactor. As soon as they lost power from that second diesel, the reactor would begin to overheat because it had been at full power when the tornado hit. And you have to cool a nuclear reactor core for days after it shuts down. That's exactly what went wrong at Fukushima Daiichi. The earthquake destroyed the electrical grid. The tsunami uh, destroyed the backup diesel generators. Uh, three of the reactors out of six were operating at full power on March 11, 2011. So when the earthquake hit, the reactors automatically shut down as designed. It's called scram. The mm -hmm. reactors scrammed. And that dates back to Enrico Fermi at the University of Chicago in 1942. Scram stands for Safety Control Rod Axeman, S-C-R-A-M. And that was the guy at Fermi's prototype reactor literally standing there with an axe. The only control rod they had on the Fermi reactor was a single control rod dangling from a pulley on a rope. And the safety control rod axe man was there 
in case of an emergency to chop the rope. Someone actually stood there, you mean? It was actually... He actually stood there. That was his job. And fortunately, he was not needed. They were taking risks with atomic reactors on day one because it wasn't a very good safety design, and Chicago was at risk. So they were willing to take those risks as a wartime contingency. But here we are taking these risks unnecessarily because we have other ways of making electricity, saving electricity, But at Fukushima Daiichi, those three operating reactors were plunged into catastrophe despite the scram because the grid was lost, the emergency diesels were lost, and they could not cool the reactors, and you need to for days on end. On that Fukushima, Kevin, you know, we hit that. that, This is way, way worse than we were ever told and far from being over, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, There's evidence that the Unit 1 at Fukushima began to melt down because of the earthquake alone, and then Units 2 and 3 followed because of the tsunami. Just within days, uh, the meltdowns were well underway, if not complete, just in the first several days for sure, maybe the first few days, although Tokyo Electric and the Japanese federal government denied it for weeks and months on end. They denied that there would even been meltdowns. They pretended that they were cooling the cores which had already melted down, and granted they needed to continue to cool the cores to prevent the meltdowns from going all the way through radiological containment into the groundwater below, which is still a risk. Uh, They have to continually cool the the cores even now, and here we are over a year later. Uh, Just recently at Unit 2, there there was evidence of overheating and uh, boiling. So a continued uh, presence of nuclear reactions taking place in these melted cores. So <clears throat> the official version of things is that this is the, the second biggest uh, nuclear accident in history after Chernobyl. But as the releases at Fukushima continue over time, it's catching up to Chernobyl, actually. It, in some ways, it is uh, worse than Chernobyl. Uh, for one thing, it's the worst uh, radiological release to the ocean in human history. Chernobyl is inland, granted the Black Sea uh, downstream of the Dnieper River suffered tremendously from Chernobyl, but the actual Pacific Ocean was the recipient of untold amounts of radioactivity, even from the cooling water, which was flooded into the reactors uh, in the first days and weeks and months and ongoing at this point. They they just released that right into the ocean, didn't they? I was reading all the cooling water they were trying to do. They had nowhere to put it, and they just stuck it back in the ocean. That was in early April of 2011, and they released on a single day 11,500 tons of radioactively contaminated water. And like you're saying, the reason they gave for doing that, this was an intentional release, was because they had run out of storage space for what was coming, which was going to be even more highly radioactively contaminated water in very large amounts. They have such a a jerry-rigged system. It's very ad hoc. They have, for example, a large floating uh, bladder in the ocean. It's, It's like an island out there. It's full of radioactive water, and it's floating out in the ocean. They brought that in, I believe, from another country. Perhaps it was from Russia. They have uh, leaks from their water decontamination system that was built by the French company called Ariba that continues to break down. It's supposed to clean the cooling water used in the reactor cores and recycle it so they can keep using it over and over. 
but they have leaks from it, which then spill. <clears throat> those are not intentional. Those are leaks, but those are going directly into the ocean because Fukushima Daiichi is right on the shoreline of the Pacific Ocean. It's within hundreds of yards of the water. So everything that's, uh, that's spilling, everything that's leaking is going into the ocean. Well, this is going to be a far-reaching, too. I mean, like Chernobyl, that they lied about that, too. And there's, that was way worse than they ever said. And there's still effects to this day from that. Uh, Fukushima is going to be, you know, ten times over what that's going to be, apparently. That's another way that Fukushima may be worse than Chernobyl. We were hosting uh, Chernobyl experts uh, right when Fukushima was happening at its worst in the spring of 2011. The reason that we are hosting them for the speaking tour, uh, the likes of Dr. Alexei Yablokov, who is a member of the Russian Academy of Sciences. He's a biologist with impeccable credentials. In fact, he was President Boris Yeltsin's environmental advisor for a number of years at the Kremlin. And he edited a book uh, a few years ago. It's called Chernobyl, the Environmental and Human Health Consequences. And one of the findings of his study, which looked at 5,000 Russian, Ukrainian, and Belarusian language studies on Chernobyl, <clears throat> was that nearly a million people have died from the Chernobyl nuclear catastrophe. And that just over the time period from 1986, when it began, to the year 2004. So you'd have to add another eight years of deaths from Chernobyl onto that figure. His figure was 985,000 deaths attributable to Chernobyl. So we had Yablokov in the United States. Uh, we had him at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., and he just went down a list of ways that he saw Fukushima, which was breaking, you know, it was still daily news at that time, why it would be worse than Chernobyl. And one of the top reasons he gave was that it is a very densely populated area, Fukushima Prefecture. It's only 150 miles or less from Tokyo, metropolitan Tokyo. So um, <clears throat> there are a lot of people being exposed to the radioactivity released from Fukushima. Uh, the same is true of Chernobyl. It's just less densely populated there. But even saying that, Kiev is just over 50 miles away. It's a city of millions of people. There's a city of 700,000 called Gomel, Belarus, that's very close to Chernobyl. And decisions were made by the Soviet Union at the time and, you know, by the Ukrainian and Russian and Belarusian governments after the fall of the Soviet Union to keep these cities populated for economic reasons. They are not willing to abandon such large cities because of the economic loss that would represent, even though a city like Pripyat, right next door to Chernobyl, just a few kilometers away, was quickly evacuated because the radiation levels there are, are deadly uh, over a short period of time. That was a city of 50,000. So at Fukushima, you've got now a 12.4-mile dead zone in most directions in radius. Uh, in the northwestern direction, it's about twice that. It's about 25 miles. It should be much larger. This is a permanently evacuated zone now, except for the workers who are desperately trying to keep things under control at the plant. At Chernobyl, you've got <clears throat> a 30-kilometer uh, or 20-mile dead zone where people are not allowed to enter except for workers again to try to deal with the radioactive waste, the contamination. They're also trying to build a, a second sarcophagus to go over the Chernobyl reactor, Unit 4. Uh, 
the first one was built very hastily in the first nine months after the accident began. And they threw literally hundreds of thousands of people at that construction project. Uh, soldiers, firefighters, uh, police, uh, construction workers from all over the Soviet Union, mostly young men, mm-hmm. suffered uh, very high radiation doses in the construction of that thing, this massive structure over the devastated reactor. Well, that thing, because it was so hastily built, because of the radioactivity levels inside, even the heat levels inside, the exposure to the elements is on the brink of catastrophic failure, of just collapsing, which would be a second Chernobyl radioactivity release. There's so much waste down inside. So what's being proposed is the largest movable structure in human history, a aircraft hangar-shaped half-cylinder uh, It'd be built about a half mile or more than that away from the current sarcophagus, and then it would be rolled on railroad tracks over the sarcophagus, and then ends would be applied so that it was sealed, and there would be a crane inside for remote control operations to try to dismantle the old sarcophagus before it collapses, because there's even questions whether the new sarcophagus could survive the internal collapse of the old sarcophagus. And the price tag on this new structure is a billion dollars, but that's that's a optimistic underestimate. Yeah, it seems on the light side, actually, for something of that size. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's not very thick, uh, the metal. It's only, I believe, a few to several inches thick. So there will come a day. The new sarcophagus is only designed to last for a century. So my coworker Paul Gunter calls it uh, a Russian doll approach. That's what they're doing at Chernobyl. This is a Russian doll approach to keeping that destroyed reactor core um, out of the environment. But the same can be said of the dry cast storage for high-level radioactive waste in the United States. Uh, it's a Russian doll approach. All future generations are going to get to deal with this forever poison that we've created called high-level radioactive waste. Nuclear, are we, nuclear plants, basically, in a nutshell, is nothing more than uh, they're boiling water, like big tea kettles. That's really all they are, isn't it? Yeah, the water is boiled um, from the splitting of the atoms, which generates heat, and the steam is then used to turn a turbo generator to make electricity. So, like Helen Caldicott, uh, who is our founding president, puts it, you know, it's the most expensive and most dangerous way of boiling water ever devised. Exactly. We have such better options, uh, especially now in the year 2012. We have wind power that's growing by leaps and bounds worldwide. It's the fastest growing new source of electricity, not only in the United States, but worldwide and has been for several years running. In some places like Germany, uh, in Spain, wind power has doubled and doubled again and doubled again. And we're seeing that in China as well, dramatic growth. Solar power is another one, whether it's solar photovoltaic electricity or solar uh, concentrating electricity generation, where you have parabolic mirrors that focus the sun's light on a liquid and boil that liquid. And didn't one of those just open recently? Some huge one? I thought I just saw that in the news, some gigantic mirror one like that. Probably in Southern California, there's others under construction in places like Arizona. I mean, it takes a very sunny place, but those are options. Very impressive, too. There's no waste, and I mean, if the mirrors break, it's not going to wipe the planet out. Yeah, it's true. Uh, The the fuel for wind power and solar power is free, of course. There's no cost for the fuel, 
and there's no long-term, uh, you know, highly toxic waste management problem to deal with, like with nuclear power or the burning of fossil fuels, which is, uh, you know, destroying our climate. Granted, you know, there's no free lunch anywhere. Um, there are problems with renewables. Uh, solar does involve some toxic materials in its uh, manufacture. Wind turbines are made of steel, which, you know, also involves right. some, some top, toxic substances. But that's but, nothing compared to nuclear. Yeah. I mean, well, a tornado can wipe out a wind tower and hit a whole solar bank and nothing's going to yeah. happen, but you got to pick up a mess. You're right. Uh, you know, in nuclear itself, there's uh, so much concrete and so much steel used in the nuclear power plants themselves. So there's all those front-end costs. But every aspect of the uranium fuel chain, from mining all the way through, uh, you know, permanent high-level radioactive waste management, has radiological and toxic chemical releases associated with it. Plus, like you're saying, the potential for catastrophic releases with reactor meltdowns. And especially nowadays with uh, our weather is turning bizarre. We mentioned that a little bit ago, but I mean, our tornadoes are turning into like super tornadoes and we seem to be getting more storms and more violent. This is a time to get rid of our nuclear power. Well, we dodged a bullet out in Nebraska last uh, summer where there were historic floods on the Missouri River. Luckily, the Omaha Public Power District uh, knew that there had been historic snows the previous winter. Uh, in the spring of 2011, they were experiencing historic rains on top of the historic snows. And so they shut down for refueling in April of 2011, and they just stayed shut down, and they're still shut down, actually. So here we are over a year later. What happened in the summer was uh, they came within a few feet of inundating uh, safety-significant systems and structures at the Fort Calhoun nuclear power plant just to the 20 miles north of Omaha. And it was a very lucky break because not only did the company decide to keep shut down, so they're not dealing with a full-power reactor, they still have to cool it, though. Even months after shutdown, they have to make sure that all systems are cooled, especially the high-level radioactive waste storage pool, which has decades of waste in it. But they still came within a few feet of overtopping uh, doors, for example. And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission had busted them just the previous year or maybe two years earlier for not being ready for floods. And so they had put uh, enhancements in place. If they hadn't done that, this flood, which they did not see coming a year or two in advance, uh, would have overtopped those uh, safety significant structures. And if they had been at full power operations, that could have been a, a Fukushima-like situation. And in fact, they suffered a fire. Even though they were shut down, they had a fire in their nuclear power plant. Workers ignored the smell of smoke for days, which is really incredible. Okay. And the Nuclear <laughs> Regulatory Commission slapped them with a red finding for that, uh, which is their top safety violation. Uh, so that makes them one of the four or five worst-run plants in the country at this point. Uh, Luckily, that fire took place during the shutdown situation when they were, you know, they literally had water lapping at the reactor containment building um, at the base of it, a few feet deep. They put up a, uh, a rubber berm, uh, an artificial dam, to keep the water away from the reactor building, the turbine building, just to give the workers somewhere they could walk around on dry ground behind this berm. And a worker was... Uh, 
running a bobcat and accidentally punctured the berm, which was water-filled, which then, you know, lost its uh, structure, and then the floodwaters were then lapping at these buildings. So hmm. very dramatic imagery. Uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission chairman uh, flew in a helicopter over the plant, took a tour of the plant. They had to have catwalks in place just so the workers could reach the plant. It's just incredible. And uh, they're still shut down, and the reason for that is, one, the red finding that they got for such a uh, lack safety culture at the plant. But also, the flood uh, saturated the ground. And so underground cabling, which is safety significant, electrical cabling, mm-hmm. underground pipes, which carry radioactive materials, as well as cooling water for the reactor, are all suspect now. They were, uh, you know, underwater for weeks and even months on end. And what kind of status they have, whether they would work when called upon, whether they're leaking at this point, is a big question mark. And they, I don't know how they plan to check all of this because it's buried. Uh, It's going to cost a lot of money to dig up. Realistically, Um, they would have to dig it up completely, wouldn't they? If they were to do, uh, you know, a safe, conservative approach, but what they get away with many times is to do samples and to uh-huh. dig down to look at a certain section of pipe and decide that the entire pipe... And that doesn't, that doesn't do anything. That's ridiculous. Well, they get away with it um, across the country. So at this point, they are shut down. Uh, I mentioned, you know, the five worst plants in the country, and Palisades, unlike Michigan, is another one of those. Uh, Which one is that, Palisade? Where's that located at? To what town? It's in Covert, Michigan, which okay. is ironically named. It's uh, just to the south of South Haven. So this is, uh, you know, southwestern Michigan, right okay. across Lake Michigan from Chicago. And they had a very close call last September. An electrician was working in the control room on a control panel at full power operations. They had not uh, isolated this control panel. So it was also, you know, fully electrified. The electrician uh, was working. A electrical uh, flash occurred, and fortunately, he jumped back. He was startled, and of course, jumped away because he could have been electrocuted. But what happened when he jumped away was he was working on a positive bus bar, and he dropped it. Of course, when he jumped away, and it fell and contacted the negative bus bar just below it. Hmm. which short-circuited the panel and cut off power to half the control room. And in an instant, uh, 22 different systems went haywire. Ones that were supposed to be on turned off. Ones that were supposed to be off turned on. And it took them several hours to bring the plant under control with only half of their control room to work with. And they had to deal with all these haywire systems. The NRC report on the incident said that they were nine minutes away from one of the steam generators going solid, which means completely filling with water. And they were nine minutes away from the pressurizer completely filling with water. What this means is that control over the temperature and the pressure in the primary loop of the reactor cooling water supply could have been lost. And Palisades is a very old plant. It's 45 years old the steam generators have needed to be replaced uh, for the second time in the plant's history for over five years. And the company, Entergy Nuclear, is simply not doing the repairs, not doing the replacements in order to boost profits because those are very costly uh, undertakings. 
And so they were nine minutes away from testing the integrity, the structural integrity of this steam generator. At the heart of the steam generator are very thin-walled tubes because the steam generator is the, the transfer point for the heat from the primary loop, which is liquid water, kept at very high pressure. That water wants to boil. It's at 600 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. It wants to boil at 212, but it's kept under something like 2,000 pounds of pressure per square inch, which uh, keeps it in liquid form. It can carry more heat that way. And then it goes through the steam generator, these very thin-walled tubes, thousands and 10,000 of them in a, in a steam generator. Uh, and it transfers its heat to that secondary loop of water that turns to steam. But if you fail these tubes, if they break, you could have a cascading failure, like a domino effect. And if you lose enough tubes, you can have a loss of coolant accident in the reactor core. So that's what they were flirting with. But there was actually a second pathway to meltdown at Palisades that day. It turns out Palisades is the most embrittled reactor pressure vessel in the United States. (laughs) Great. This means that the neutron radiation from the core has poked microscopic holes in that 8-inch thick steel wall of the reactor pressure vessel. And if those holes line up just right, you could have a fracture of the reactor pressure vessel. And this is especially possible if you have an activation of the emergency core cooling system, which would inject cooling water into the core, which is very hot, it would be brought down in temperature very quickly. And kind of like a hot glass under cold water, uh, this reactor pressure vessel is now very brittle. It's lost its ductility over the years and decades. And you could have uh, a fracture of the operating, well, even if it's shut down, which happened, the, the reactor, again, like at Fukushima, the reactor at Palisades instantly shut down, but you have to cool it for days. And so one of the systems that went haywire was the emergency core cooling system. It turned on even though it wasn't needed and was very close to injecting cooling water into that uh, pressure vessel. And that would have been the ultimate test of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's assurances that their weakening the embrittlement standards time and time again over the decades in order to keep this reactor operating was okay, everything was safe, the reactor pressure vessel could survive. Uh, This would have been the ultimate test. And all of that happened last September 25th. And, you know, if the worst had happened, uh, then people all over the Midwest would all of a sudden have learned very quickly where the Palisades nuclear power plant. They keep this also quiet, too. You don't hear about this stuff. Don't they have, like, redundant systems in these things? You would assume that there's some completely redundant system if something fails. Aren't they built that way, or they just don't work either? Well, they claim they have redundant safety systems, but um, at Palisades, for example, they have a half dozen major safety systems, safety-related systems, that have long been in need of repair or replacement. And uh, the previous owner of the plant, Consumers Energy of Michigan, cited these six major systems and components like the reactor lid, the reactor pressure vessel itself, the steam generators. Uh, They cited them as reasons for selling the plant to Entergy Nuclear of New Orleans, which is the second biggest nuclear utility after Exelon of Chicago in the country. 
only Entergy never made the repairs. It was kind of like a, uh, a false promise. We're going to sell Palisade. The repairs are going to be made. We're going to have all these redundant safety systems. Well, <laughs> that was uh, 2007. We're five years beyond that. They've never made the repairs. So they're just gambling with our lives to make a higher profit, basically. Yeah, I've got some slogans I, I trot out sometimes. One is radioactive Russian roulette. <laughs> exactly. All over the place in various ways. And the other one is uh, making a killing while getting away with murder. And the making a killing part is how much money they're making on electricity sales at the atomic reactors, for one thing. They've externalized almost all of their costs and their risks and their liabilities onto the public, onto ratepayers, onto taxpayers, while pocketing all of those massive profits. I mean, just one example is Indian Point which is located very near New York City. It's about 25, 30 miles north of midtown Manhattan on the Hudson River. It's two atomic reactors owned by Entergy of New Orleans, the same company that owns Palisades on Lake Michigan. And Indian Point, on a daily basis, makes $1.2 million in net profits. Wow. A little bit of that will be taken away for local taxes, but not much. So... It's fair to say that well over a million dollars a day in net profits at two reactors. Uh, this is from electricity sales. And the only reason they can get away with that is because uh, high-level radioactive waste management uh, forever into the future, that's going to be covered at first by ratepayers who pay a surcharge on their electricity bill for nuclear waste management. But that fund of money, which right now is about $30 billion dollars, uh, that's built up since the early 1980s, will quickly be spent if a dump site is ever constructed. The price tag for Yucca Mountain was $100 billion. They actually wasted $11 billion on the Yucca site, and it's now canceled. So that was a waste of $11 billion. There's about $20 billion left in that nuclear waste fund. That'll be quickly spent, and then taxpayers will be looked to to make up for the shortfall. So that's just one subsidy. Another one is liability coverage. It's called the Price-Anderson Act of 1957. What that does is uh, it ensures uh, nuclear utilities for the lion's share of property damage if they have a catastrophic radioactivity release. The way it works is the first $11 billion or less would be paid by the nuclear utilities of the United States as a, as a pool actually. No matter where the accident happened, the entire nuclear industry would be involved in paying the first $11 billion in property damage and the insurance companies that they've hired. But above the $11 billion mark, that again would be taxpayers. It would require the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to declare an extraordinary nuclear occurrence, an ENO, they call it, which they did not do at the Three Mile Island meltdown. And in addition, it would require the U.S. Congress to appropriate the money. So those are a lot of ifs. Uh, they might not do it. They never did it at Three Mile Island, even though hundreds of thousands of people were impacted by that meltdown. So um, that's another form of subsidy, uh, and the list just keeps going. It's just a safety over profit thing. I mean, if they make that kind of money, they, you know, unfortunately we've seen this in big corporations numerous times, they really don't care about what happens to us as long as they can make that money. 
we saw that at Davis Bessey near Toledo, or the one I mentioned about the tornado strike back in 1998. Mm-hmm. They've had so many close calls with disaster, and one of them was in 2002. We refer to it now as the hole-in-the-head fiasco on the reactor lid, which is, again, it's several inches thick of steel. It's the lid on the reactor. They had uh, boric acid from inside the reactor leaking out through the top of the reactor where the control rods insert. So there's these insertion points. And the boric acid was was leaking out, and it was eating its way down from the top of the reactor downward. And the only thing that was left, uh, nearly seven inches of carbon steel had been eaten away. Wow. Uh, A cavity about as big as a a football, or Mm -hmm. that's an example of how big it was. It was about seven inches deep. The only thing left was a thin layer of stainless steel liner, which is on the inside of the reactor pressure vessel. It's to prevent the boric acid, which is in the primary loop uh, cooling water in order to help control the nuclear reaction. Boron is a neutron absorber. So the stainless steel liner is in there to prevent the boric acid from eating its way out of the reactor pressure vessel but it was eating its way down from above. And so all that was left with the, was the stainless steel liner, which was now bulging into that cavity and was soon to burst itself. Wow. And that would have been uh, a loss of coolant accident. The primary water under such high pressure would have turned instantly to steam, completely evacuating the reactor pressure vessel of any cooling water at all. And it would have been really just minutes then to melt down and then the meltdown would have very likely burned through the reactor pressure vessel, the bottom of it, fallen onto the floor of the reactor containment building, and then burned its way down through that concrete and, you know, very possibly have reached groundwater. That's exactly what's going on, what has gone on is still going on at Fukushima Daiichi. The three melted-down cores are completely melted down. This was, you know, uh, fuel rods 12 feet in length completely melted down, forming a molten mass, burned through the reactor pressure vessel bottom, fell onto the floor of the radiological containment structure, which is concrete, burned through that. And even Tokyo Electric has admitted at Fukushima Daiichi that at certain units, the the molten core is likely within inches uh, of burn, or at least at the very most, it's away from burning out of containment into the external environment. It's continuously going, though. It's not as if it stopped yet, right? I mean, it's, it... still, it's still hot. If, uh, if the molten mass forms a critical mass, which is enough fissile nuclear material, uranium-235, plutonium-239, if a critical mass forms, even in these melted-down cores at Fukushima Daiichi, you can spark a chain reaction. You can have a nuclear reaction in these melted-down cores. So they're continually pouring massive amounts of water on these melted-down cores to try to cool them. They're hoping that critical masses won't form, and so they actually pour uh, boric acid into this flood of cooling water to try to prevent nuclear reactions. Hmm. But um, once once it's out of control, uh, they can't get in there. They just sent a probe into Unit 2, Fukushima Daiichi Unit 2, uh, a few weeks ago the second probe since the catastrophe began, and where they expected to find 30 feet of cooling water in that um, containment structure, 
they found two feet. So there are massive leaks in the... Uh, yeah, the I just saw... Isn't, was it true that they, the last robots they put in there won't even work anymore because the radiation levels are so high? I thought I had read that somewhere. But, on, that of course, on the Internet, you got to take it all with a grain of salt. But No, you're right. Uh, that was widely reported in the Japanese media. It was actually admitted by Tokyo Electric. Uh, the robot's uh, circuitry is just fried by the high radiation levels. I'm trying to remember the figure. Um, I think it was the figure in the Unit 2 at Fukushima Daiichi is 7,000 rems per hour. You know, you know speaking of that, Kevin, isn't, here's another issue. I mean, it's bad enough this is dangerous and this is going to happen, but the powers that be lie out their butts. And no matter what it is, they downplay it. They never tell you, and then all of a sudden, I think Fukushima, didn't they double their their you know projected how much was out there numerous times throughout this project they just don't tell us the truth until they're forced yeah. to that's an issue there if they came out and told you the truth people could be more ready for you know for what that's worth but they lie to the last second yeah you're right they have uh time and time again i i've lost track of how many times they've doubled the amount of radioactivity that they all right. emit. And that's double. That, that's not saying, oh, 10% more. That, that's doubling what it is. Yeah. yeah, they've done it several times, especially in the early months. Uh, you know, denial, denial, denial. Oh, double the amount. And then a month later, they would do it again. And, you know, the other shoe to drop I haven't mentioned yet at Fukushima Daiichi is uh, the Unit 4 pool of high-level radioactive waste storage. It's got 135 tons of high-level radioactive waste. That's there. the elevated pool or something, right? Isn't that the one that's... It's a very bad design, you're right. The pools are 60 to 100 feet up in the air. And the reason for that was it was very convenient for removing irradiated nuclear fuel. <laughs> it seems asinine. I'm not in the industry, but to me, right off the bat, I see issues with that. <laughs> well, they can't empty the pool at this point, the... Uh, the infrastructure was destroyed by an explosion. Even though Unit 4 was not operating, the lead official theory right now is that the hydrogen gas generated by the meltdown at Unit 3 flowed through common venting systems and piping systems over to Unit 4, causing the explosion there, which destroyed the reactor uh, secondary containment building. So now that pool at Unit 4 is uh, you know, under the open sky. It is open air way up there. And the building at Unit 4 is listing, as is the pool, and they actually put steel jacks under the floor of the pool to try to prevent the floor from falling out. If that building collapses, if that pool floor falls out, as due to another earthquake, uh, that waste would lose its cooling water supply and could catch on fire within just a few hours at most. And that's high-level radioactive waste in that pool, right? That's like the, the extreme waste. And it's open air. There's no containment. The, uh, the melted-down cores are still partially contained. Granted, the containments are damaged, leaking. But the mother load of radioactivity in those three melted-down cores is supposedly still in there, unless Tokyo Electric and the Japanese government are massively lying, which they might be. Yes. The mother load of radioactivity is still contained. Uh, and a lot got out, but there's a whole lot more in there. Similar at Chernobyl. A lot got out, but there's a whole lot more in there. At Unit 4, this pool is open air. There's no radiological containment around it. So any releases would be directly to the environment. And just to give folks an idea of how much radioactivity we're talking about, there's eight times the radioactive cesium-137 in that Unit 4 pool than was released at Chernobyl. So we're That's talking. amazing. 
And if that uh, falls, there's no way to contain it. I mean, it's out, right? That's a, a worst-case scenario that the sitting prime minister at the time of the beginning of the disaster, Prime Minister Naoto Khan, asked for a secret worst-case scenario to be worked out so he knew what he was dealing with. And that pool collapse would be a part of such a worst-case scenario because what would happen when the high-level radioactive waste caught on fire is the dose rates on site would now be so high that all workers would have to be evacuated or else it would be a suicide mission to be there. And if you evacuate all the workers, that means that the other pools on the site, and there are seven altogether, there are six pools, one at each reactor on site, and there's a seventh common pool that is 50 yards away from Unit 4. And the, the majority of the waste at Fukushima Daiichi is in that common pool. You would have to abandon the entire site. All seven pools would eventually go up in flames because, you know, the cooling systems would either break down or run out of fuel. That would just be a catastrophic chain reaction. You'd have seven pools on fire. Uh, the three melted-down cores would also be abandoned, so they would probably find their way into the environment for lack of cooling. It would be, um, you know, an unprecedented radio radiological release. But just seven miles to the south of Fukushima Daiichi is another nuclear power plant. It's called Fukushima Daini. Four reactors, at least four pools, and Daini actually survived March 11, 2011, by the skin of its teeth. The um, five off-site power lines existed. Four of them were lost to the earthquake. A single one survived. Wow. And the tsunami took out the emergency diesels on site. So four operating reactors, more than at Daiichi. There were three reactors at Daiichi operating. Uh, four reactors and their pools survived at Daini because of a single off-site power line. Well, if the Unit 4 pool um, fails and goes up in flames at Daiichi, Daini is very close by. And the dose rates at Daini may be too high for workers to be there. So then you're, you're risking the pools, and um, the, presumably the reactor cores at Daini have been offloaded into the pools, which makes the pools more risky, actually. Those pools would be at risk if Unit 4 at Daiichi um, goes up in flames. They're just seven miles away. And that worst-case scenario, the New York Times broke the story in the U.S. Uh, there's an independent investigation on the nuclear catastrophe in Japan being carried out uh, by a former top editor of the Asahi Shimbun, which is the biggest daily newspaper in Japan. His name is Funabashi. And independent investigations are very rare in Japan. Usually there's trust in the government, there's hierarchy. Well, he and his colleagues have taken it upon themselves to try to do an independent investigation. They have interviewed 300 top decision makers in government in Tokyo Electric, including the former prime minister, including his chief spokesman at the time, whose name was Adano. And Adano was the one who described the worst-case scenario as a demonic chain reaction of atomic reactor meltdowns. They were looking at three meltdowns, which did occur at Daiichi, seven pool fires at Daiichi, which would then lead to the evacuation of Daini, four meltdowns at reactors, four pool fires, and then that would spread to the Tokai nuclear power plant near Tokyo, nearer to Tokyo, one reactor up in flames and also a pool fire. They were talking about the permanent loss of Tokyo, a city of 30 million people, 
having to be permanently evacuated. And, J and Japan's not that big to start with either, so they start losing that kind of land. They got nowhere to put people. That's a part of, you had mentioned, just the massive lies, the massive denial. This uh, very small dead zone at Fukushima Daiichi, 12.4 miles in radius, is way too small. And it's the official uh, decision by the Japanese federal government. They're actually trying to move people back in right up to the edge of that 12.4-mile radius, even though there's severe contamination all over the place. There's severe hot spots in Fukushima City, which is about 50 miles away. That's the capital of the prefecture. Uh, there's severe hot spots uh, across Tokyo, which is 150 miles away. There's been Fukushima fallout um, found all over Japan, as far away as Okinawa and Hokkaido, uh, 8% of the land mass of Japan is now contaminated. Well, how about their, uh, speaking of land, how about their uh, food chain? I mean, their farmers, their animals. So, I mean, it, that should be all being affected too, isn't it? There's dozens and scores and probably hundreds of different uh, food items, individual food items, from rice to vegetables of various kinds to fruits uh, to livestock, all contaminated. Uh some so much so that it's been declared unfit to eat. Uh, Fukushima agricultural products are very much stigmatized from across the prefecture. People are avoiding purchasing them. Uh, the Japanese had to hastily establish a uh, what they're calling a permissible level of radioactive contamination in food, and the figure is 500 becquerels per kilogram. A becquerel is... Uh, one radioactive disintegration per second, but that keeps going. That's one radioactive disintegration per second, per second, per second. And when we're talking radioactive cesium-137 and radioactive cesium-134, uh, the persistence, the hazardous persistence of cesium-137 is 300 to 600 years. So if you have one becquerel of cesium or 500, let's say, 500 becquerels of radioactive cesium in your food, uh, well, it would be there for up to 600 years into the future, hmm. giving off 500 radioactive disintegrations per second, second after second. And so um, the Japanese have just decided that this 500 becquerel per kilogram level is, is uh, edible. <laughs> is it's that something safe. new if they, I mean, is this just yeah. been raised like they always kind of do? <laughs> It was actually established after the catastrophe. But, you know, I should mention that the, the U.S. standard is worse, is weaker. We allow in the U.S. 1,200 becquerels per kilogram in our food of radioactive contamination. You know why? You already said it, Kevin. It's because of what they make on this industry. That's exactly yeah. what it is. <laughs> so we could be importing uh, contaminated food from Japan and eating it, and we wouldn't be knowing it because the U.S. federal government uh, would not be quarantining this food. It would be allowed to be sold and eaten. And you're right, uh, the power of this industry is, is pretty immense. Uh, we, thanks to the work of uh, Judy, Fa let's see, what is her name? Judy Pasternak is an investigative reporter. Uh, she's based at American University in Washington, D.C. And in January of 2010, she revealed the lobbying expenditures of the nuclear power industry. She looked at the time period from 1999 to uh, 2009. 
And the nuclear power industry at the federal level, so this did not even include state-level lobbying, had spent $645 million on lobbying. Oh. So that's more than a million dollars per week that the nuclear power industry is spending at the federal level of our government lobbying our elected officials uh, at the White House, uh, at Congress. And my joke was that I had just moved to Washington, D.C. to do this work in 1999. So my joke is that I knew what that felt like. <laughs> I didn't know what the dollar figure was, but I knew what that felt like trying to counter the nuclear industry lobbyists. And we've had amazing successes, uh, our grassroots movement, against that kind of lobbying. One of the biggest industries in Washington, D.C., throwing its weight around. For example, we staved off, we fended off the Yucca Mountain dump long enough that President Barack Obama could cancel it. You know, uh, the mm -hmm. Republicans to this day, to a member of Congress, want the Yucca Mountain dump opened. This is a high priority for the nuclear power industry. They want to offload their liability for high-level radioactive waste as quickly as possible. And they would like to resurrect Yucca Mountain. They would like to spend several billion dollars that's left in that nuclear waste fund, bring it back to where it was under George W. Bush, who was racing to open the dump, and make it happen and, uh, you know, throw caution to the wind. What so are they doing with all their waste right now, Kevin, all these individual places? What, I mean, what, do they bury it on their own grounds, or are there special places they got to put this? Or what's the industry do now? Uh, it piles up at the reactor sites. They have indoor pools um, that are going to be completely full at every single nuclear power plant, certainly by the year 2020, perhaps as early as 2015. Every single pool will be as crammed full as possible. They couldn't put another fuel assembly in there if they wanted to. And what they have to do is they have to take the oldest waste out of the pool, which they then put into dry cast storage. It's like overflow parking. It's outdoor, mm -hmm. um, silos of concrete and steel, to make room in the pool for the hot stuff coming out of the core because they have to refuel the cores every few years. Mm -hmm. And so that extremely hot waste just coming out of the core, which is intensely radioactive, has to go in the pool for a minimum of five years. They have to free up enough space in the pool uh, for that and they do that by taking the oldest waste out of the pools and putting it into dry casks. So it's just, it's the shell game. Uh, the pools are full, uh, more and more dry casks on site. There's a proposal now. Uh, you know, I've, I've kind of praised Barack Obama for canceling Yucca Mountain, but he deserves some criticism on radioactive waste. He established what he called the Blue Ribbon Commission on America's Nuclear Future. This was to find a plan B to Yucca Mountain. It was established in January of 2010. Unfortunately, uh, the Obama administration, the Energy Secretary, Stephen Chu, appointed to this panel 15 pro-nuclear members, and some were just egregious appointments. Uh, John Rowe, the CEO of Exelon Nuclear, the largest oh, nuclear... Yeah, he's not biased at all, is he? <laughs> he is responsible more than any single individual in this country for more high-level radioactive waste generation than anybody else. He's got this major liability on his hands. He's made a personal fortune. He's made a corporate fortune on generating this forever poison. Yeah, exactly. The conflict of interest couldn't be worse with John Rowe. 
yet he was appointed to this panel. And you know why that probably was, is that the Obama administration has very close ties to Exelon Nuclear. Up until January of 2008, Exelon Nuclear was the second biggest campaign contributor to Barack Obama in his political career. When he was a state senator in Illinois, when he was a U.S. senator from Illinois, now he's running for president. And granted, it's changed since, because once he got the nomination, then he was getting money from all over the place, right? But up until January of 2008, Exelon Nuclear was his second biggest campaign contributor, still is a big one to the present day. And so this was, you know, a payback to this huge campaign contributor. In addition to uh, John Rowe and Barack Obama, that close connection, Barack Obama's inner circle has close connections to Exelon. Um, David Axelrod was a top lobbyist for Exelon and is now senior advisor to the president. Uh, Valerie Jarrett, who's still a close uh, confidant of the Obamas, was also a top lobbyist for Exelon. Rahm Emanuel, the current mayor of Chicago, mm-hmm. who was White House chief of staff for Barack Obama, was the investment banker who made Exelon Nuclear come into being. He was the investment banker who presided over the merger of Commonwealth Edison of Chicago, the biggest nuclear utility in the country, with Philadelphia Electric, the second biggest nuclear utility in the country. They came together and formed Exelon Nuclear, this mega nuclear utility with about two dozen reactors in its fleet. And he made, Rahm Emanuel made, at least $8 million. I've heard as much as $15 million of personal fortune on that merger. Uh-oh. So these are some examples of the close ties between Exelon and uh, the Obama administration. You know, France is often looked to as, you know, the poster child for nuclear power. Uh, there's a lot to be said about that. There's so many. Well, they're like what 80 percent nuclear or something, aren't they? It's way up there. It's about 75 to 80. But you know what? Chicago has it beat. <laughs> Does it really? Has more nuclear electricity than uh, France. And it's because that Chicago is ringed by atomic reactors. Uh, Commonwealth Edison was an early uh, enthusiast for nuclear technology going back to the 50s, actually. So you have Dresden, Units 2 and 3, still operating in Morris, about 50 miles from Chicago. You've got Quad Cities, Units 1 and 2, operating um, in western Illinois, uh, northwestern Illinois. Those are Fukushima Daiichi twins. You've got four of them. Are they really? Illinois. They're identical in design. Right down to the pools, elevated and crammed much more full of waste than the pools at Fukushima Daiichi. So actually, the pool risks in Illinois at Dresden and Quad Cities are worse than the pool risks at Fukushima Daiichi. It's just going to take a natural disaster or an accident or or a terrorist attack to um, set those pools on fire in Illinois. You've also got um, other nuclear power plants of different design than the boiling water reactor. This Fukushima design is called a general electric boiling water reactor of the Mark I design. That's what you have at Dresden and Quad Cities. But you also have other nuclear power plants in Illinois. You have Braidwood, which are um, two units. They are pressurized water reactors. Mm -hmm. Uh, Braidwood is infamous for massive leaks of tritium into groundwater, which, again, this is Exelon, were covered up for over a decade. They had a single release of 3 million gallons of radioactively contaminated water 
tritium is radioactive hydrogen, so the water is not contaminated. It is contaminated with other radioactive isotopes, but the hydrogen in the water is itself radioactive. So the water is radioactive. In that area there, too, I don't know if you're familiar with it. That was only about 40 minutes from where I used to live, and I have a lot of friends that live there. That's rivers and lakes and creeks and canals everywhere, that area. Well, the ironic thing is at Braidwood, as at all 104 operating nuclear power plants in our country, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, even the state-level equivalents, you know, in Illinois, it's the Illinois Department of Nuclear Safety, the Illinois Environmental Protection Agency, they grant permits to places like Braidwood to discharge tritium into the air and into the water on a regular basis. They have a permit, and tritium being radioactive hydrogen, it's the smallest element on the periodic table. Tritium can actually penetrate certain grades of stainless steel. It's incredible. Tritium can pass through solid stainless steel. It can pass through many uh, physical structures because it's so small. It actually passes through the molecular structure of the substance and finds its way out. That contributes to these leaks, you know, and we're familiar on an ordinary basis with how water Mm -hmm. finds its way anywhere. Well, radioactive water, uh, tritiated water, can do the same. And um, what happened at uh, Braidwood is that they had these permits to discharge into the Kankakee River, and they used a, a miles-long discharge pipeline to do so. So really, they have a permit to release all the tritium they have, as long as it's below a certain concentration, um, you know, so they can just do it over time. But on the way to the river, it leaked. Uh, there were um, valves on this miles-long pipeline mm-hmm. that failed, and it leaked into groundwater, and massively. We're talking 3 million gallons. Uh, wow. I believe it was... Yeah, it was, it was 10 years before 2006. See, that's a wildlife area, too. There's all kinds of deer hunters. I mean, it's it's a beautiful area out there. There's a, a community called uh, Godley Park District, and mm-hmm. they get their drinking water from wells. And the groundwater uh, at Godley was contaminated, so people were drinking contaminated um, groundwater. They were bathing with it. They were cooking with it. Um, ever since 2006, Exelon has provided bottled water to the Godley Park District, and they're supposed to be building a water, a water treatment facility. But there, there is a nature preserve near Braidwood where the ground, groundwater was severely contaminated as well. So you're right. Um, the whole area is suffering this. Uh, this that's a beautiful area out there. I don't know if you've been out there before, Kevin, but that's miles and miles and miles of woods and nature and you know, camping sites and all that stuff. That's a terrible area to have nuclear power at. I've never been to Braidwood. I've been to Dresden, which is about 20 miles from Braidwood, I believe, and it's beautiful down there. A lot, you know, a lot of nuclear power plants, uh, Palisades is next to Van Buren State Park, uh, Cook in southwest Michigan, uh, in Bridgman, which is south of Yeah, that's actually right by my mother's house. Yeah, that's right next to Warren Dunes. uh, Exactly. And you know, a part of that history, I mean, it seems like it's just an odd, uh, bizarre coincidence, right, that nuclear plants are next to... Parks. Yeah, that was going to be a question, too, because uh, they're always next to water like that, too. Well, the water is for cooling, and so they're using massive amounts of water for cooling. In fact, Cook has two reactors and has no cooling tower. Cooling towers cut down on the amount of water that you consume, um, but it's kind of a trade-off. So Cook 
is literally taking in billions of gallons of water per day from Lake Michigan and then discharging it at much hotter temperatures than it was taken in at. So is the Warren Dunes radioactive? I mean, when you're at the dunes, you can look right to your to the, your right as you're standing at the dunes and you can see that plant. You're just a few miles away from Cook at that point. Well, just like all nuclear power plants, they have routine radiation releases to the air and the water. So yes, it, it has to be said that there's a certain level of contamination, certainly, uh, at Warren Dunes and in the lake there. That's ter- I see another place I grew up. You're hitting home here. I mean, I, I'm from Illinois, but I spent a lot of time in Michigan, and I used to go to the Warren Dunes, especially when I was a kid. I was there every single weekend. Yeah, some of my, my first memories, because I'm from Kalamazoo, Michigan originally. That's where I'm speaking to you from right now. Some of my first memories when I was probably three or four years old was climbing Warren Dunes. Mm-hmm. And it would have been right at the time that the Cook nuclear power plant was being constructed. And it seems like a, a weird coincidence that these plants are often, you know, surrounded by parks or right next to parks. Well, the thing is, they were consciously taking advantage of that situation because what they need is a buffer zone. They need a buffer zone. Um, oh, okay. Yeah a permanent residence some distance away from these plants because they are going to be exposed to those routine releases. They're also going to be at risk of a catastrophic accident. So they're buying some space that way. Their thinking is that, you know, people only visit uh, a park once in a while. They only stay for several hours. They start to do the math. They start to average out the radiation doses. One of the things that's quite shocking is that at Palisades, for example, they will have batch releases of radioactive waste into the lake on a single day. They'll call it a seasonal batch release. So in the summertime, that's the worst of all. The lake at Palisades, because uh, Van Buren State Park is right there, mm-hmm. the lake, Lake Michigan, is going to be full of swimmers. It's going to be full of boaters. I mean, we oh, have, exactly. you go out there on any summer day, like in July, and you've got a couple dozen boats that are anchored just off of Palisades. You've got perhaps hundreds of people in the water. And guess what? Palisades Nuclear Power Plant is going to do a batch release of radioactive waste into the lake that day. And they're not required to, like, give out any sort of warning that they'll be doing it or nothing, are they? No. And the way they get away with it is they divide the batch release, because it's a seasonal batch release, they divide by three months, which is, you know, 90 days, close to 100 days. They divide by uh, the whole season, and they say, well, on average, a person in the lake would get this much. They're dividing. They're only using a 1% figure for what they're actually letting loose that day. So the people in the lake that day are getting a big dose, a relatively big dose. They're not getting 1% of that dose. They're getting that big dose. They make it all okay on paper because they average it out. And they say, well, on average, a person would only get so much of a dose. So... A lot of games are played. Uh, they're devilish games. They're diabolical. I never realized that one. I mean, I must have got huge doses because I used to practically live at the Warren Dunes. Yes, yeah, yeah. And this is going on all over the country at nuclear power plants. Uh, one other thing, Kevin. I know we're talking about that, but nuclear for weapons, is that compl- – see, I don't know a whole lot about this, so you got to clue me in. Is that a different grade nuclear? Is there a different waste? You know, is that a different thing, or is it basically the same thing as nuclear power? There's a lot of similarities. Um, in fact, though, uh, commercial nuclear power, uh, there's a lot more radioactivity involved. And the reason for that is that in a commercial nuclear power plant, the nuclear fuel – is left in the core for as long as possible. They're trying to squeeze as much juice out of that lemon as possible. Uh-huh. So 
so a, an irradiated nuclear fuel assembly will stay in a core sometimes for you know three years. Now they're they're lengthening that to even more, several years. They're squeezing as much electricity potential out of that fuel rod as possible. At a a military production reactor, which fortunately in the U.S. have all been shut down because we have plenty enough uh, bomb-grade material. <laughs> oh, isn't that great? <laughs> so much. Um, yeah, they had to close the last military production reactors after Chernobyl happened because they were actually very similar in design. They had the same design flaws out at Hanford, Washington. So those fuel rods at the military production reactors were only left in for a short time because the goal was to generate plutonium which also takes place in uh, commercial reactors, only the plutonium um, grows and grows. Uh, it's not bomb-grade in commercial waste, but you've got a lot of plutonium in commercial waste. About 1% of commercial waste is plutonium, this ultra-hazardous substance. So at the military reactors, they took the fuel rods out pretty quickly, and it didn't allow for the buildup of more and more radioactive uh, fission products, they're called. So, you know, a figure would be something like 95% of the radioactivity in the United States, perhaps as much as 99%, comes from commercial nuclear power. Okay. And then the other 5% or even as little as 1% comes from um, military-related. But they've made huge messes, even saying that. They've made huge messes at the military production sites, places like Hanford, Washington, uh, Savannah River site, South Carolina, Idaho National Lab. They've done what's called reprocessing, which is extracting that plutonium from the high-level radioactive waste for military use. Uh, Hanford is where the Nagasaki bomb and the Trinity test bomb were fabricated during the Manhattan Project. And then Savannah River site, South Carolina, and Hanford were where the massive quantities of plutonium were then extracted for use in you know, our nuclear arsenal ever since, the hydrogen bombs. Those places are severely contaminated. Hanford is the worst contaminated, radioactively contaminated site in the Western Hemisphere. Russia's got its beat, unfortunately. Uh, they have even worse contaminated sites, but Hanford is our worst contaminated site. You've got hundreds of millions of gallons of liquid high-level radioactive waste that mm. has not yet been re-solidified into glass logs. It's stored in underground tanks that are huge in size. These mm -hmm. are million-gallon tanks with this liquid waste inside that have to be continually cooled, continually stirred, because if you lose the cooling, you could have explosions in these tanks, which would be catastrophic. Sounds like if there's an earthquake and one of these tanks ruptures. You've got it actually, you know, just by leaks, some of those tanks have completely leaked their contents into the ground, into the groundwater at Hanford. When they built Hanford uh, back in the 1940s, they were really rushing. This was the Manhattan Project. This was the race to the bomb, trying to beat the Nazis to the bomb, even though the Nazis had <laughs> were way behind and had abandoned the project for the most part. But we kept on racing. Uh, they built single-shell tanks to put this liquid, high-level radioactive waste in. Some of those tanks have completely leaked their contents into the ground, and now this is a plume of radioactivity making its way towards the Columbia River which, uh, you know, is a major source of irrigation water and drinking water mm -hmm. for, you know, cities like Portland. It's a snowball effect. Once it starts going, it just goes everywhere. So it's a nuclear nightmare at Hanford. That's, that's the military atom. Um, uh, the Savannah River site in South Carolina is similarly 
contaminated. Uh, the groundwater is very high at, um, you know, you go down 10 feet into the ground and you're hitting groundwater at Savannah River site. So they have, you know, contaminated wildlife at both of these places. Um, so they've made a huge mess. The same uh, poisons as you find, as we've been talking about, in the commercial nuclear industry you find in the military waste in massive amounts. Okay. I actually had no idea whatsoever. I was thinking that military might be worse, but like I say, I didn't have a clue. Well, they certainly threw caution to the wind, took huge shortcuts. I mean, back in the 40s and 50s, they were dumping high-level radioactive waste and other categories directly into the ground. Uh, they would dig these pits, uh, these wells. They were called dry wells, um, and they would just dump plutonium down there. Pure? You mean no containers, just dump it in there? dump it in the ground, uh, they didn't understand or didn't want to understand what that meant. You know, at a place like uh, Idaho, um, you've got the Snake River Aquifer down there. So they're dumping plutonium into these dry wells uh, just to get rid of it. <laughs> and, of course, it's going to find its way into the Snake River Aquifer. So, you know, you've got this pristine aquifer, or at least it used to be, and you've got, you know, world-famous fishing <laughs> in the Snake River uh, that's all at risk, and the and the Snake River aquifer is used to irrigate the potatoes and the other agriculture of Idaho. That's the kind of risks uh, that we're going to be hard pressed to try to do anything about. But we have to, we have to prevent a mother load of radioactivity from reaching, uh, you know, down at Savannah River site. It's the Tuscaloosa aquifer. Um, but even to this day, here we are, 70 years into the atomic age, and the decision makers at the Department of Energy. Uh, are making terrible decisions, and the only uh, thing that's stopping them from just making catastrophic decisions uh, are us, our our people. You know, grassroots people making a huge difference by being involved. You know, I've talked a lot of doom and gloom about the problems. I haven't talked too much about the solutions. Uh, the solutions uh, are. Are challenging. We have a lot of dilemmas we face, but for example, on the commercial high-level radioactive waste, we have a nationwide environmental consensus that what needs to happen is, number one, stop making it. That's the only real solution to radioactive waste. But number two, for the 67,000 tons we have piled up at the reactor sites, what we're calling for is hardened on-site storage. That means emptying the pools and making much better quality dry casks than we currently have. In fact, they need to be defended against terrorist attacks, they need to be safeguarded against accidents, and they need to be built well enough that they're going to last for centuries, not for decades. Like right. So that needs to happen, and the industry, in its profit-maximizing ways, is refusing to empty the pools. They don't want to spend the money on the dry casks. They're refusing to build good dry casks. We have defective ones like one at Palisades with defective wells that's been sitting there for 20 years. So there are answers to these problems. We can at least uh, contain the problem by stop making more. And then for the waste that exists, we're going to have to carefully guard it, isolate it, keep it out of the environment for a million years into the future. We've doomed future generations to that task, but it has to be done because the option is unacceptable, which is that it gets out would cause untold suffering, not only for humans, but for other life forms. I mean, there's nothing we can do at this point. We got it. Now we're stuck with it. I mean, Earth is one big ecosystem. You know, it, no matter what you do anywhere on Earth, eventually it's going to affect other places. 
And the, the false philosophy of the nuclear establishment is that dilution is the solution to pollution. And actually, uh, a colleague of mine, Michael Keegan, at a radioactive waste grassroots gathering we had in June 2010 in Chicago, uh, we started the session way too early in the morning, and he misspoke. He said delusion instead of dilution. <laughs> but that's exactly it. That, that's the not misspeaking. That, <laughs> yeah. The, the idea that dilution is the solution to radioactive pollution is a delusion. You know, uh, like you said, we live in one big ecosystem. What goes up must come down. And when you uh, are putting tritium releases intentionally, discharging them into the Kankakee River at Braidwood, guess what? Wilmington is immediately downstream, just a few miles away. And Wilmington gets its drinking water out of the Kankakee River. So there are consequences for that. And unfortunately, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Exelon Nuclear, downplay the way they deal with the situation because you can't filter tritium. There's no economic way to filter tritium. So their solution to this problem is to just let it all go. I just can't believe that. I tell you, I grew up in a bad place between Braidwood and Cook and Wilmington, all those areas. My gosh, I've been in this for my whole life. Well, one of the consequences of all this radioactivity release in the Dresden, uh, Morris, and uh, Braidwood area is, uh, for example, a single elementary school in uh, Morris had five rare brain cancers at it. This was uh, about a decade ago. And the mother of one of these children, um, the mother's name is Cynthia Sauer, and her daughter is Sarah Sauer. Uh, Sarah was diagnosed with a rare childhood brain cancer at age seven. This was, uh, I'm trying to think of the year, I think this was in 2001. And after the initial shock and, you know, the intense dealing with the situation, uh, Cynthia Sauer started to ask some questions. Like, first of all, she discovered that there were five rare childhood brain cancers at this single elementary school in Morris, Illinois. There should not have been one. Yeah, five is way beyond what what should be. Something's going on. So Cynthia started asking questions, and uh, she called the water manager for her area, the person in charge of drinking water at the local level. And at one point, he told her to stop asking questions. (laughs) He literally said, stop asking questions. Cynthia, if you get to know her, will not take no for an answer. And she's not going to stop asking questions. What an outrageous Especially when it's about your child. Yeah. Well, the good news is that um, Sarah uh, has survived. Uh, She's now graduating from high school. Uh, She's in remission. It's very much affected her um, in, in, in very physical ways. But she's alive. She's a lucky one because some of the others did not survive. It's not only rare childhood brain cancers, it's uh, rare heart conditions in children. So Cynthia rented a room at the Holiday Inn in Morris, the conference room, on her own nickel, held a town hall meeting because the Nuclear Regulatory Commission wouldn't do it, the state of Illinois wouldn't do it. There were 300 people showed up at this thing. This was on Chernobyl Day of 2004. Mm -hmm. I was there. Uh, Barack Obama's uh, campaign manager he was running for U.S. Senate, was in the room that day. So Barack Obama and his team have known about this situation at uh, Morris since at least April 26th of 2004. It's ironic, but the Chernobyl anniversary was also the diagnosis anniversary for Sarah, for her cancer. And uh, 
it was incredible to be in this room, which was actually filmed, so there's a record of this somewhere. I don't have it, but there were people in the room who stood up, and they'd never been together like this before. The community didn't realize the epidemic of childhood disease. Um, the doctors in Chicago did because that's where the children were sent for specialized treatment for these very rare cancers, these very rare heart conditions. Never before in Morris had people realized that this was going on. The parents would meet up in the waiting rooms in Chicago one by one. And here you got 300 people in one room. And, uh, you know, Cynthia Sauer and her husband Joe um, made this happen. And uh, it was just heartbreaking for one thing because a number of the children did not survive. Um, That's terrible. There was a, a special education um, instructor who stood up and said, you know, I've learned about these rare conditions. I read about them in my textbook, but they're very rare. And you usually don't in your entire career see one. But in Morris, we have an epidemic of these rare conditions. And this woman said that she called her professors where she went to school to come to Morris because they, as professors of these rare conditions, had never seen a case like this. So that's, you know, you cannot peg a certain child's disease to a radiation exposure. Our epidemiology is not that sophisticated. But you can certainly look at increased rates of disease and say, you know, there's a cause for this. There's an environmental cause for this. What is it? Those studies are not being done incredibly. It's very convenient for the nuclear industry that our epidemiology is not sophisticated enough many times. And besides that, they just don't do the health studies. A lot of times state and federal agencies have to be dragged kicking and screaming to do the health studies. And when they do them, like uh, up in Massachusetts, there was a health study about Down syndrome uh, downstream of a nuclear power plant. It took 10 years for the health study to get done with intense citizen involvement. These were the parents, the families, the support groups of the families of children with Down syndrome who became involved in this. They wanted to know, and sure enough, they found statistical significance uh, related to the location of the nuclear plant on the river and the downstream communities. But it took 10 years of intense personal effort by families who already had a lot to deal with. They have children with Down syndrome. The same with Cynthia Sauer. Her daughter is in remission with brain cancer, and she's been now active for the better part of a decade. And it was Cynthia Sauer who revealed these tritium releases at Braidwood. Exelon had covered them up for over a decade. This was something completely unknown until this point, and no one, I mean, in the industry they knew, but I mean, as far as, you know, the people, the real people living around there had no idea. The victims, yeah. Um, Cynthia Sauer did a Freedom of Information Act at the state level, and eventually it was revealed that um, there had been these massive, you know, three million gallon tritium releases at Braidwood. That's unbelievable. That area is just so beautiful. It's like when you go out there, it's like you're in one of those vacation lands. It's, I mean, you got to go there to experience. It's just a great area. And to know it's polluted like that is terrible. Well, not only uh, Exelon Nuclear has some answering to do for that, but so does the state of Illinois um, Environmental Protection Agency. They knew about these uh, discharges. And they kept them quiet. In fact, there's a smoking gun email. It's Exelon staff talking to each other. And I don't remember the date on the email, but there was going to be a public meeting. There was growing concern about problems at Braidwood. And one Exelon official said to several others, hey, look, the Illinois EPA is going to be there tonight. They said they're not going to say anything about the leaks. They used more couched language than this. Mm -hmm. um, 
so couched that I read this back in 2003. I read this email, and I didn't understand the significance of it at the time. It took several more years for Cynthia's Freedom of Information Act to reveal the full significance. They said something like, the, the state EPA will not bring up the blowdown lines unless a citizen asks a question about it, and then they'll have to address it. Wow. So those blowdown lines were those pipes to the Kankakee River that were leaking. Mm-hmm. So this was a cover-up involving the state of Illinois, Department, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency of Illinois, uh, Exelon Nuclear. And, you know, I've got to lay some responsibility at the feet of President Barack Obama because he's known about this, or his people have, since April 26th of 2004 when that town hall meeting Cynthia called in Morris took place and little to none has been done about it. At this point, the companies are allowed to voluntarily uh, admit when they've had a tritium leak in the groundwater. Mm -hmm. If they don't want to do it, they don't have to do it. The NRC is not going to make them do it. Uh, President Obama is not making them do it. When Obama was a senator, U.S. senator, he introduced legislation that would have required companies to uh, announce when they had tritium leaks, uh, radioactivity releases into the environment, but it died in committee because the Republicans controlled the Senate at the time. Well, Barack Obama is now president of the United States, and he could, by executive order, make this happen. You know, right. he just hasn't gotten around to it, um, and it's you know it's something he's known about for uh, eight years now. Kevin, I got a question for you. At, at Braidwood, like I said, this is the only plant I really know well. There's a, there's a, I guess it's a cooling lake. I don't know what it is. And there's a huge covered bridge that goes across it because the fog is so thick you can't see. Well, what is that lake out there? You know, it's warm water. I'm guessing is there is that radioactive? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's a huge lake outside the built outside the place, and you actually drive across it on a covered bridge. Yep, uh, Exelon would say no. It's not radioactive. Uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission would say, no, it's not radioactive. But if you press them, they would eventually admit that there is some radioactivity in the water <laughs> because it's a part of the cooling system. Right. So the, the reactors, there are multiple loops at a pressurized water reactor like Braidwood. Uh, the innermost loop is the primary loop. It is intensely radioactively contaminated. Uh, but supposedly it is separated from the other loops that generate the electricity through those steam generator tubes, the primary loops inside, and then the exterior loops uh, turn to steam and generate electricity. But mm-hmm. there are leaks. There are, there are pinhole uh, holes, pinhole pricks. There are cracks in those steam generator tubes. There are leaks throughout the system. And as I mentioned, tritium, for one, can pass through even thick steel. It can find its way through thick steel. Uh, so when you've got these thin-walled steam generator tubes, you can bat tritium getting through there. Also, there are tritium and radioactivity releases to air. So certainly that water and that steam uh, has some radioactivity in it. Um, they also use the cooling system as their discharge pathway. I mentioned the batch releases. And right. Toxic. Those radioactivity um, and toxic chemical releases go out those cooling water systems into the surrounding surface waters. Hmm. So, yeah, there, there would be radioactive. So I didn't think about that, but I remember I've driven through there numerous times, and temperatures are right. It's like something out of some creepy horror film because it's so foggy you can't see anything. It's just really strange. But I always used to think, is this radiation in here? I remember ages ago always thinking that when I was crossing that thing. 
Well, you know what's amazing about a nuclear power plant, the same is true of a coal plant. They're very inefficient. Only a third of the heat generated actually gets transformed into electricity. That means two-thirds of, two of the heat is waste, waste heat that is then discharged into the environment, either directly into surface waters at nuclear power plants that lack cooling towers, or if they have a cooling tower, then um, they use less water from the environment. They, they take in less water for cooling, but some of that water is then turned to steam and released out the top of the cooling towers. And so that steam is then lost to the watershed. It's going to blow away downwind. So massive amounts of water are used at nuclear power plants for cooling purposes. So we've all been exposed to radiation that people live around these planes, through the air, through the water, through everything. I mean, small amounts, but we're all exposed to it. Yeah, and I, you know, I had started talking about solutions. I, I'd like to just encourage people, you know, it is a lot of doom and gloom. There's a lot of risk, but, you know, don't get paralyzed. Uh, the the mother load of radioactivity has not escaped into the environment. I have a colleague, Mary Olson, at Nuclear Information and Resource Service, who says what gets her up in the morning, and she's been doing this stuff for 25 years or more, is realizing that most of the radioactivity has not gotten out yet, you know. Um, one one area of activism that we really have to push hard is prevent another generation of nuclear power. Um, there's four new reactors under construction in the United States right now, two in Georgia, two in South Carolina. Uh, the public is bearing the financial risks, not the utilities, not the nuclear industry. That's a crime right there. But, you know, there hasn't been a successful, so to speak, successful reactor order in the United States since October of 1973. Hmm. That is such a huge victory. President Nixon had a vision of a 1,000 atomic reactors in the United States by the year 2000. In the end, 130 got built. And there were a lot of reasons that those 870 other reactors didn't get built. The cost overruns, the schedule delays, uh, the accident at Three Mile Island, the meltdown there. But anti-nuclear activism. I mentioned my coworker Paul Gunter. Um, he's been doing this since 1975. He was a founder of the Clamshell Alliance at Seabrook, New Hampshire. There has been this very active anti-nuclear movement for a very long time in the United States. It's had a huge impact, and it's still there. We need to grow, <laughs> believe you me. Uh, myself, Paul, people who've been doing it 20, 30, 40, 50 years are pretty tired. We need new people. There's a lot at stake. We need to stop new reactors, and we have to get really busy on the old reactors and shut them down before the worst happens. I was fortunate and privileged enough to go to Fukushima Daiichi before the catastrophe, seven months before the catastrophe. I was invited there by the anti-nuclear movement. They were trying to prevent the loading of plutonium fuel into Unit 3 at Fukushima Daiichi, and they had held it off for over a decade. It was a miracle. They had exposed uh, scandalous cover-ups involved in the proposal, and they had held it off, but this was their last, last gasp at trying to prevent the loading. And I was invited there to talk about the dangers of plutonium fuel in reactors, the dangers of storing plutonium irradiated nuclear fuel in pools. I met with the mayors of the two towns that host Fukushima Daiichi. I met with the Fukushima Prefecture nuclear regulators and all these assurances of safety. The same thing I hear in the United States from elected officials from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Those activists in Fukushima Daiichi 
had been warning for years and decades about the dangers of that plant, and their warnings fell on deaf ears. And we feel the same in the United States many times, but at the same time, there's so many victories. Even at Fukushima Daiichi, because they held it off for 10 years, that Unit 3 reactor core had not been fully loaded with plutonium. Oh, so that could, that could have been much, much worse then, huh? And all of the units could have been loaded with plutonium, and it would have made this catastrophe so much worse. And so it, it seems a nuance, but, you know, when you look in detail, um, there was only a 6% plutonium core in Unit 3. It could have been as high as 33%, and that could have been true at Units 1 and 2. It could have been true at the Daini reactors, which barely averted catastrophe. So there are more victories uh, than defeats. And, uh, you know, it's a movement that needs a lot of help, especially in Illinois. There are so many fights coming our way right now. Let's get into that a little bit, Kevin, too. I mean, actually, what can our listeners do to help? I mean, get all the information you want out there right now for all our listeners. What can they do to get involved? How do they help? Well, you're fortunate in Chicago to have one of the best anti-nuclear grassroots groups in the country right there in Chicago. It's called Nuclear Energy Information Service. And you can go to their website at www.neis.org, and you can call their office at 773-342-7650. The executive director is named David Kraft. He's been at this uh, line of work for, boy, since the early 1980s. Uh, They just celebrated their 30th anniversary uh, last November as an organization, and Dave's been at it for longer than NEIS has existed, actually. Hmm. You could plug into that group. Actually, if you'd like to meet um, members of NEIS as well as myself, we're going to be at the Chicago Green Festival this weekend, Saturday and Sunday, down at Navy Pier. Our, Our booth number is number 722, so come on by and check out. We have a vast array of handouts. We can also talk to folks at length. Um, another way to, to meet NEIS and myself from Beyond Nuclear is on Monday, uh, May 7th at 5.30 p.m., we're going to be having a, uh, a social gathering and a fundraiser at the home of Angela Turley, which is 4254 North Hazel in Chicago. And, uh, again, you can RSVP to the NEIS office. Uh, the what, the uh, email address for Dave is NEIS at NEIS. Org. And you can learn more about the issues, how you can plug in. Uh, what we need to do, in short, is take our government back, for one thing, both hmm. the state government here, and the federal government. <laughs> Not just for nuclear Actually, reasons, either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. On this issue and so many others. Governor uh, Quinn is uh, actually pretty good on these issues. Uh, it's, it's interesting because he's from the... Uh, most nuclear state in the U.S., you know, Illinois has 11 reactors, but the governor gets the issues he long has, so it's a tremendous opportunity. Uh, The attorney general also gets the issues, has played a huge role in some major victories, actually, at the national level. Um, Back in 2006, there was a proposal to start trucking and hauling by train and even barging on Lake Michigan, high-level radioactive waste, to get it moving, to get it away from the reactors, to unload that liability onto the public and move it to places like what they called centralized interim storage sites. Uh, Dresden has to be on that list because already at Dresden you've got three reactors with all of their wastes 
and you have what's called the General Electric Morris Reprocessing Facility, which thankfully never fired up. But all told, you've got more than 2,000 tons of high-level radioactive waste right there in Morris. So I'm fairly confident that that would have been high on the target list for centralized interim storage. Why not just consolidate it all, you know? All of Illinois' waste, maybe all of the Midwest's waste right there at Dresden. Why not, you know? And Lisa Madigan rallied uh, attorneys general across the country against this idea because what it was going to do was give the U.S. Department of Energy, the Energy Secretary, override authority over governors, over state attorneys general to make these decisions. And, you know, without Attorney General Lisa Madigan of Illinois intervening in a big way, that could have become the law of the land. And we face a very similar proposal yet again right now. Um, there's a push, unfortunately, by the Obama administration to do this. They're calling it consolidated interim storage. There was just a bill passed in a Senate subcommittee at the U.S. Senate, the Appropriations Committee for Energy and Water, to fund this idea at the Department of Energy. It would get the waste moving by road, by rail, by waterway. Again, Dresden could be a target for Midwestern waste from a dozen states. Isn't that like incredibly dangerous? I mean, if you got a railroad car full of nuclear waste and there's an accident, I mean, isn't that like asking for a disaster? Some of the railways that would be used uh, are in downtown Chicago. Uh, one of them is a quarter mile from the Art Institute. Okay, so if that you got a train load of that stuff, Kevin, and it has a wreck right there, that would just obliviate Chicago, basically, wouldn't it? It would be, yes, a disastrous radioactivity release. It's certainly possible. Um, terrorist attack, there are anti-tank missiles that exactly. are designed to penetrate much thicker armor. And these transport containers were not designed against terrorist attacks. The, the thickness of these containers is radiation shielding to protect the workers, the drivers, exactly. the public. They're not designed against anti-tank missiles. They and, would fail. And they're talking um, trucks, you said, too? Semis trucking it, too? Yeah. They're talking mostly rail, but there would be trucks on the highways. So that, that's absolutely insane. I mean, that's just, you know, beyond words. Barges on Lake Michigan. Um, so these are the kind of fights we need help with. Uh, we need help lobbying Illinois' congressional delegation in Washington, D.C. You've got Dick Durbin, who's uh, second in command to the U.S. Senate right now. Very powerful position. Uh, Illinois can make a huge difference on these issues and has in the past. And it's, you know, thanks to the good work of NEIS. Um, and we definitely need an infusion of, of fresh faces and new blood into our movement because a lot of us are pretty worn out. <laughs> Getting tired, <laughs> huh? For a long time. Uh, as you said, you know, the lies, the cover-ups, um, the media not covering the issue for the most part. Uh, it's really hard to get the, work out, the word out. And so oftentimes uh, these fights involve way too few people on our side of the fight. And we have staved off some of the worst over the years and decades, but they keep coming at us. They have what, what areas are our worst? We're actually got a global audience too, but I mean like at the United States, where are the worst areas? What plants are, you know, in the worst shape? You know, are there key ones around the country that are really dangerous ones? Yeah, there is kind of a short list for various reasons. Uh, Vermont Yankee is the most controversial atomic reactor in the United States. Uh, the state government is adamantly opposed 
to the 20-year license extension there. So it's turned into a federal government versus state of Vermont battle in the courts, in the streets. Uh, Large-scale civil disobedience began on March 22nd with 150 arrests in Brattleboro, Vermont at Entergy Nuclear Headquarters, simultaneous arrests at Entergy's Northeast Headquarters in New York State and also its national headquarters in New Orleans. Uh, that's a Fukushima twin at Vermont Yankee. It's okay. over 40 years old. Another very controversial plant is uh, Indian Point, Units 2 and 3, another Entergy nuclear power plant located very close to New York City, probably the single biggest security risk in the United States. Actually, Mohammed Atta on 9-11 wanted to attack Indian Point, but did not get clearance from Al-Qaeda to do so. Thank God. Our plants are sitting ducks for terrorist attack. Uh, another one more recently is uh, San Onofre, California, which suffered steam generator tube failures in January. The ironic part is these are brand-new steam generators. These are replacement steam generators. They cost $700 million, and they're failing very quickly. They're only a year old. Oh, my gosh. Because greed, greed caused the company to insert so many steam generator tubes in these steam generators that they damaged the structure, actually. The uh-huh. vibrations have failed the tubes. That plan is shut down, and there are groups like Friends of the Earth at the national level, Greenpeace, USA, the local groups of California that have always been there for decades. They are trying to keep San Onofre permanently shut down. Uh, Palisades in southwest Michigan, right on the Lake Michigan shoreline, is on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission shortlist of the four or five worst plants in the country after that September near miss. Actually, there were two near misses in uh, Palisades last year. And uh, that plant is an accident waiting to happen. So the anti-nuclear movement of southwest Michigan is very active. Uh, We just met with the office of U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow on the issue, asking her to involve herself in this issue. We've been after her for a long time, actually. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot going on. There's a whole lot to plug into all across the U.S. Uh, worldwide, of course, uh, a lot of nuclear issues. We have 104 reactors in the U.S., but there's a total of 440 across the world. Um, some more dangerous than others, but every single reactor with its own pathway to catastrophe. Uh, it's not just the reactors, though. It's the uranium mining, you know, which is often targeted at indigenous peoples. Right. Australia is soon to surpass Canada as the world's biggest exporter of uranium. And in both countries, uh, in Australia, it's Aboriginal land. In Canada, it's First Nations lands. Uh, that has to be stopped for, for human rights reasons, you know, um, so, yeah, the world's not a the world's not a very pretty place anymore. <laughs> this is a, a good fight, you know. There's a saying from the civil rights movement: uh, if you see a good fight, jump in it. And uh, this is certainly a good fight uh, for environmental reasons, for uh, environmental justice reasons, for human rights reasons. Well, for future generations, your children's children down the line. I mean, my gosh, they're going to inherit this crap. Yep, and you know. Like I said, you know, 870 reactors in the U.S. never saw the light of day. They were stopped. 130, unfortunately, did see the light of day. And that's why the industry is so desperate right now. Even at Vermont Yankee, a plant that should have long ago closed, the nuclear industry is fighting tooth and nail to keep it open. 
And I think it's because it's not only the greed of Entergy Nuclear. They like the money they're making. Despite exactly. The well, if they close a plant, can they cover that electric they're losing? I mean, between like solar and wind and everything? That's the good news is, uh, you know, there was a study done by Arjun Makajani at Institute for Energy and Environmental Research in 2007. And he showed five years ago that by the year 2040, we could completely replace the nuclear power and fossil fuel used in the United States in all sectors, electricity, transportation, heating, our entire economy, and convert to maximized efficiency and renewables, things like wind power, solar power, geothermal. And in fact, Germany is doing just that. In the aftermath of Fukushima, conservative Prime Minister Angela Merkel announced a phase-out of nuclear power by 2022 completely. He was a smart man. He, he saw the writing on the wall, and, and he did what should have been done. Yeah, she, a Angela. Or Angela, she, I'm sorry. She's a conservative, which is amazing. She, she did it for political survival. She, before Fukushima, was trying to undo the nuclear phase-out plan and extend reactor operations in Germany. But two weeks after Fukushima, the Conservative Party lost regional elections in Stuttgart and Bremen, where they had ruled for 58 years. And they lost those elections to the Green Party. And it was entirely about Fukushima. It was entirely about nuclear risks in Germany. For her own political survival, she announced, oh, I didn't mean it. We are going to phase out, just like has <laughs> been originally planned. Just like a politician. Then, uh, never mind. <laughs> They're also committed to climate goals. You know, they are a world leader um, on Kyoto climate goals in Germany. So they're not going to replace that nuclear with nuclear from France or with coal power in Germany. They're going to replace it with renewables. They're a world leader on wind. They're a world leader on solar. Germany is a northern latitude country. Um, you know, it's sort of similar and even worse in that regard than the Midwestern United States. And yet they're making solar work. We're fighting Davis-Bessie near Toledo. We're trying to stop the 20-year license extension, and we're fortunate to have a solar expert as an expert witness. He's former chairman of the physics department at University of Toledo. And Toledo is a hotbed for solar photovoltaic panel manufacturer. Companies like First Solar are located there. Mm -hmm. He did the math, and he determined that the 250 acres at the Davis-Bessie nuclear power plant plus 50 acres at the Norton Compressed Air Energy Storage Facility, also owned by First Energy Nuclear. And then several uh, cities in northern Ohio, the commercial rooftops there, putting PV on, those, on that surface area would be enough to replace the 908 megawatts electric coming from Davis-Bessie. And that would be cheaper to, to run, too, wouldn't it? I mean, there's not a heck of a lot of, you know, you don't have cooling pools for your solar panels. Yes, over time it would be. Um, and solar, just a few years ago, actually new solar photovoltaic surpassed new nuclear in price. It would be cheaper to do new solar photovoltaic than it would be to do new nuclear in the United States, hmm. which is remarkable because nuclear for over 50 years has enjoyed massive subsidies. Solar has not. Um, if you look at the subsidies to nuclear, it dwarfs the subsidies given to all renewables, something like 30 to 1. So despite the subsidies, nuclear can't compete economically. Despite all the externalization of uh, costs and risks and liabilities, it's losing out economically to renewables. I know wind, uh, wind power is huge. I went up to uh, yeah. Iowa a couple of years ago and along the interstate, and at one stretch, 
there's huge wind generators as far as the eye can see. New wind is half the cost of new nuclear to install. And it's also much quicker. Both solar and wind are much more quickly deployed than new nuclear. It takes a decade or more to build a nuclear power plant. It takes a matter of months to install a massive wind turbine farm. So that's the good news, is that renewables are ready. They have been ready. They're, they cost less. They're certainly safer and more secure. They're genuinely clean. So that is the future. It's just a question of, do we decide to go that route, or are we forced to, like in Japan, because we've had a nuclear catastrophe? Exactly. Days from now, there will not be a single operating atomic reactor in Japan. 54 commercial reactors, there's one operating today. In a few days, it too will be shut down. The local governments, the local populations, will not let the Japanese federal government or the nuclear industry restart these reactors for fear of what might happen. It's a shame that it took something like this to do that, too. That's what's ridiculous, actually. Japan, uh, unfortunately, the nuclear industry will not give up. They're fighting tooth and nail to come back to life. But hopefully Japan will go renewable, will go efficiency, will do away with nuclear. Um, Germany has decided to do that. I mean, the, re the reasons in Germany are many. One is a very active anti-nuclear movement for mm -hmm. decades. Another one is a strong Green Party that grew out of that active anti-nuclear movement. Another one is that Germany lived under the Chernobyl clouds. And yeah. you know, there are many people who remember the fear that they felt. There are still food restrictions in Germany to this day on certain foods like wild boar because they eat mushrooms in the forests that concentrate radioactivity. Wow. So because of Chernobyl, because of Fukushima, those countries sort of get it, at least the population. No, only if America did. Now, we're actually getting to the end of our two hours here, Kevin. We're running out of time. Do you have uh, website information for your site or how people can join you guys? Or is there anything you want to get out there in closing? Yeah, I would encourage people to visit our website, which is www.beyondnuclear.org. You can also call us at area code 301-270-2209. And you can email me at kevin at beyondnuclear.org. We'd be happy to work with folks in Illinois. Um, people can also plug into Nuclear Energy Information Service. And that website is www.neis.org, which is Illinois' nuclear watchdog. Okay, Kevin. Well, I appreciate you taking time to come on with us. And if you have any news or anything you want to get out there, you just contact us and we'll put you right back on the air again. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being so generous with uh, your time and your interest. No problem. Take care now. Thanks for listening to Thresholds Radio. We will be back next Friday on The Edge at 7 p.m. or Sunday on UFO-info.com. See you next week. Thanks for joining us.